our neighbor and our friend who is always so much encouragement to us uh, speaks to us. He was unable to do so at Christmas this year, so we're thankful that he's here for Palm Sunday. I invited him to preach this morning, and he said he couldn't preach, but that he would bring greetings. If you want to extend your greetings into a sermon, Billy, we'll be glad to listen. And uh, we're very thankful to Billy for all of the kindness that he shows us in Montreat. And we're glad that he has come to read the Palm Story lesson and then to tell us about uh, his work so that we can pray for him. I notice in your bulletin it says that the scripture will be read from the NIV. I was not aware of that and so I have a very unfamiliar passage uh, a, a translation to give you, the old King James that some of you may remember. <laughs> the 21st chapter of Matthew beginning with verse 1. The 21st of Matthew beginning with verse 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Till ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees, and strewed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before, and that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. In the crowd that day were people that had different ideas of who Jesus was. Some were opposed to him very violently as we, because he was soon to be crucified. He was on his way to the crucifixion. And we know the viciousness with which many people looked upon him. There were others that thought he was a great prophet. Others thought perhaps or accepted the fact that he was the Messiah. But Hosanna means help we pray. That's the meaning of the word Hosanna. Help we pray, or we pray thee help. Help us. And so they were crying for help, and they thought he might throw off the Roman yoke, or they thought that he might uh, free them from all their chains and their problems. Calvin has asked that I say a word about our forthcoming meetings that we leave this coming Tuesday to spend nearly four months in England, and we will be holding meetings and uh, crusades in six British cities, not in London. We've held four major crusades in London, but uh, our friend Luis Palau will be holding a meeting in London at the same time, and we will be in major football stadiums in cities like Liverpool, Birmingham, Newcastle-on-Tyne, Bristol, 
Norwich and places like that, places maybe that you've never heard of, but they're big football stadiums. And we're going to places where unemployment is 30%. We're going to places where there's a great deal of occultism and uh, places where there's a tremendous uh, amount of alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, divorce rates are extremely high, all the problems that we face in this country except in some of these places even worse. And we would appreciate your prayers because there will be opposition, a great deal of opposition in some quarters. But we have the backing of the church. The Archbishop of Canterbury gave a uh, reception for us in January and he spent 20 minutes telling why he supported these crusades and in every place we're going the bishop is either the leader or he is supporting the crusade as well as by far most of the churches mostly Anglican churches and we would appreciate you praying because if Britain does not see a touch from God at this time there are some people that feel that Britain as we have known it will not be the Britain that we have known it in the next 10 years. Things are going downhill so fast, morally, economically, and many other ways. And they need your prayers, and I'm sure that they would appreciate uh, your prayers. We have a great deal of television open to us, which uh, no evangelical hardly ever gets on television in Britain. I've already done five hours of recording for the BBC. I do four hours a day I get there, and uh, then they're going to telecast some of our services nationally and some regionally and then it'll be on the British radio. The British press has been very kind and they've been giving a great deal of uh, publicity to it. The Queen entertained Ruth and me for two days at her home in Sandringham. So our privilege to preach on Sunday morning and to spend hours with the royal family. And I think she was doing that because she was saying we're behind this crusade. And last Sunday uh, our entire team that's over there, 60 uh, Americans and British that are working together, worshiped with her in her little chapel at uh, Windsor, and then afterwards she came over and talked to them and asked them about Mission England, uh, indicating the interest of the royal family. And then it'll be our privilege to address the House of Commons uh, in a separate uh, room where President Reagan addressed them and Mrs. Thatcher when I went to see her she told her parliamentary secretary she said I will be there and I want all of our people there and we want all I saw Shirley Williams who is the uh, just the other day in Washington she's head of the new party in Britain the SDP and they're going to be there and we hope the Labour Party people will all be there Mr. Kinnock has indicated that he will be there so we need your prayers for all these special events that God will give us in Great Britain and then last night I had already canceled a meeting in Korea uh, <laughs> to be followed almost immediately after we have finished six crusades in Britain and all the other things that we'll be doing. And I thought that by that time I'll be in the hospital. And uh, the Korean church had invited us to come and deliver the message for the 100th anniversary of uh, missions in Korea. And last night, dear Dr. Han, who for many years was minister of Yongnok Presbyterian Church, the great church of Korea, called me about 11 o'clock. And he said that he was in his 80s but still going strong. He said, Brother Graham, you're still a young man. You can do it. And he said, uh, everybody in, in Korea is praying. All the churches are united. He said, we're expecting between 3 and 5 million people at that service. And he said, you have to come. You cannot refuse. And of course, I could not refuse. And so 
we will go to Korea, God willing, as soon as the meetings in Britain are finished to help them in their celebration. So we would appreciate your prayers. And we know that people in Montreat pray. All the prayer groups that go on and the circle meetings and so forth. And we're very appreciative of your support and your prayers and the support of Calvin Thielman. I, I would have preached this morning because I have a Palm Sunday sermon, at least one. Go right ahead. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, when Calvin called me this morning about two and a half hours ago, he gave me the outline he was going to give and what he was going to say this morning. I said, Calvin, I need that message so badly, I'm going to sit down and hear you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bill. We appreciate that. God bless you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy and your great love wherewith you loved us in sending your Son into the world for the purpose of reconciling rebellious people unto thee. We thank thee for our Lord Jesus Christ and for his entrance into the holy city of Jerusalem to begin that most important week in the whole history of the world. We cry again with the crowds, save us, and pray that you will cause us to keep on crying to you, save us, and not to turn our backs upon you. We thank you for every preacher and teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for those who love and serve him in many places in the world, in little country churches here in the mountains, in little rural areas in Korea and Brazil, and in, ch in house churches in China and Russia and other places. We thank you for your servant Billy Graham and for the huge multitudes to whom he speaks all over the world. And pray that you will add your special keeping power to him to give him strength to keep up the mighty work which you have begun in him and continue to do. We pray for his family your blessings as well, and for this strenuous uh, journey which he now undertakes. We ask you to keep him and to uphold him and to fill him full of your spirit and to cause him to preach nothing more, nothing less, nothing other than your word to the world. We thank you, Father, also this week for those who serve on foreign fields, who come from our own community here in Montreat and whose hearts have lately been struck with sorrow. Our special prayers go to Jim and to Margaret Linton here in Montreat and to the family of Hugh Linton, wherever they are. And we seek your blessings for each of them and the tragic sorrow which has come to them. We thank you that all things do work together for good to those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And those of us who knew Hugh believe with all our hearts that he was called to your purpose. And so we pray that you will bless those whose sorrow and joy are mingled because they rejoice in the victory you have given him but feel sorrow at the loss of a great and good servant. Please be with his dear wife and be with his children. And our Father, we pray for those in our number here, many of whom have burdens that are not easy to talk about but are hard to bear, and we ask that you will suit a blessing for each need. 
And then we praise you again for our opportunity this Easter week to celebrate again the Holy Supper, to draw near to you and confess our sins, and to rejoice once again in the victory of the resurrection of our Redeemer. And now we ask you to continue to speak to our hearts in the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Eric, you make the announcements and announce it. Let me stress again the Bible studies this afternoon. Someone asked me which one you go to. I would go to whichever one's nearest to uh, the place where I live. There are Bible studies in Black Mountain and two here in Montreat between four and five this afternoon to prepare us for Holy Week. Now then, our lesson is from the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to John. Let me remind you that in reading the Gospel of John, you want to keep very carefully in mind the fact that the purpose of this book is stated in John chapter 20, verse 30. And then we'll go back and pick up the lesson. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for which it's written. Now we look at the event that took place on the first Monday Thursday uh, of Holy Week. It was just before Passover. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done to you? He asked them. You call me Master and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Once you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen. May God bless to our hearts an understanding of this part of his word. I want to call your attention to, uh, back to that statement for which the purpose of the Gospel of John was written. These things are written that ye may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you might have life through his name. He has come into the city of Jerusalem on what is the most important week in the whole history of the human race. All other weeks pale into insignificance beside it. The people did cry out to him, Hosanna, which does not mean praise the Lord, but which means save us, Lord. And if there is ever a time when we need to be crying, save us, Lord, it's today. But when we come to so much of what's done in the name of Christ, we see it so often blighted by our sinful pride, my sinful self, my only shame is what was being played a moment ago on that violin. Our glory is all in the cross of Jesus Christ. We cannot be greater than our Lord. And our job is to surrender ourselves to him. Not to go our own way, but to go his way. To deny ourselves. Now the background for this, that big week with all of its tremendous celebration. Now try to keep this in mind. The Passover meant the greatest victory that God had ever given Israel. He brought them out of the land of bondage in Egypt when the chances wouldn't have been a billion to one that they could have been delivered. And God sent the angel of death and every home over which there was that blood on the doorpost and the lintel the angel of death passed over and God's people came out in the great exodus an event, an act, a concrete, specific act of history. Now that's being celebrated. And what are the circumstances in which it's being celebrated? The oppressive power of Rome is there. Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, would have come into Jerusalem that week as he would be there on any festival occasion. There would have been a hundred horsemen in front of him and a hundred horsemen in back of him, in a great parade with a show of fierce Roman soldiers, with all their elegant armor shining in the sun, with their spears and swords, a show of force. Watch the May Day Parade in Moscow. Watch the October celebration. See the rockets go down the way. See the new armaments of warfare. And so Rome comes in in its great power. Herod who is king, was lavish in what he had built. The grandest palace, if you watch tonight on Yeshua, which is done by Oswald Hoffman of the Lutheran Hour, and you can see it on Channel 9 on the uh, Christian Broadcasting Network, you'll be able to see something. You know what remains of it? The Romans, to show that they destroyed everything in 70 AD, left only a little part of Herod's great temple, which he built. And that's the Wailing Wall. And when you see those Jews in front of that Wailing Wall, 
you know what glory they once had. Well, now they are oppressed by Rome, and Rome is in power. But they remember the Maccabean revolt and Judas Maccabees who had led them. They remember that these palm branches are signals and signs of the household of the Maccabees. And they know that Jesus has made blind Bartimaeus to be able to see. They know that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. They know that he is not afraid of any mortal man. And so the people think maybe, just maybe, this is the Messiah and he has come to deliver us. And so they all gather in the way to put the palm branches there and to shout out, save us, save us, Lord. But we have a way sometimes of surrendering to the Lord and then as life goes on, we get busy with other things and we don't obey him anymore and our love for Jesus grows cold and he is, not, he is no longer really Lord of our life. Jesus knows that this kind of thing may happen and so he wants to teach his apostles a very important lesson. The background to what I read to you a moment ago in John chapter 13 is, is clearly placated for us in Luke 22 verse 14. Uh, and a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. That happened on the way into the upper room. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. You'd think Muhammad Ali would be saying, I am the greatest. But here are the disciples of Jesus talking about that. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them are given the title benefactor. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Now why is he saying this and why does John record for us? John, all four records of the gospel tell us about the Palm Sunday event. But only one tell us about the washing of the disciples' feet. And you know who tells it? John tells it. And do you know why John tells it? I think it's because John is the youngest. And John was a little bit ambitious. Once his mother had come to Jesus and said, I have something to ask of you, a favor. Will you let my sons, James and John, sit the one on your right and the one on your left when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they rather naively say, Lord, we are able. But what did that mean? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he sweat great drops of blood, and when he cried out to his Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And that's the only time you'll be close to the Lord, is when you do his will, not my way, but his way. When you surrender 
to him. And they're arguing about who shall be the greatest. And John was the youngest, and it would have been John's natural task to have washed the disciples' feet. The, the others would have been older. But they were quarreling about which one was going to be the greatest. They'd seen all that crowd of people, and they knew that they were all shouting out to Jesus that he must be the Messiah. And so they were all thinking, now Peter will probably be Secretary of State. And uh, let's see, John, because he's the son of thunder, maybe we'll make him Secretary of Defense. And uh, this one is going to be the head of the National Security Agency. You see, they were parceling out who was going to be the greatest in this kingdom. They were so obtuse that they still couldn't take in that Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And John, who would have been the youngest, would have been expected to have washed the feet. He says, I'm not going to wash anybody's feet. And he didn't do it. And Philip said, well, if you think I'm going to do it, you're wrong. And this went all the way through the crowd. All the time, Jesus knows that within 18 hours, he'll be nailed on a cross. And he knows that God has given all things into his hand. But a mark of secure individuals is that they can do humble things. Jesus takes aside his garment and puts it aside and girds himself with a towel. And then one by one by one by one by one. That's the way he deals with all of us here. No matter what you're thinking about, he comes to each individual. He goes to each one of them, to Thomas, even to Judas. And he looks at every one of them right in the eye, and he takes their feet, and you can hear the, the water trickle out in the basin as he pours it out. Stunned they must have been. There their dirty feet are. And he reaches out and takes their feet and begins to wash them. Oh, brother, go to Presbytery sometime. If ever a foot washing ought to occur. <laughs> you don't have to wait to Presbytery. It's who's going to be the great. It's so uncomely, so apart from Jesus Christ. I don't have time to go through the things here. The first point that I do have this morning is Satan rebelled against God because of pride. Jesus Christ, God's Son, came and he was humble. Pride will bring you down every time. The apostles demonstrate pride in that they refuse to wash each other's feet. So Jesus demonstrates humility for them. And if you want the best commentary on that text, just read Philippians chapter 2. He who exists in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself of all of his prerogatives and took upon himself the role of a servant, a slave. It's all there in the second chapter of Philippians. This is what overwhelmed Paul, the proud Pharisee. So Jesus demonstrates this to them. We need cleansing. We need cleansing through the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll come to the Lord's Supper this week. Are you ready to take the Lord's Supper? Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of, said Jesus? To be baptized with a baptism that I am baptized with? 
Whosoever saves his life must lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel shall find it. Someone has said that the greatest and deepest and profoundest words in all of poetry are those words from Isaac Watts' hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. That's there. We need the cleansing through the word of God. This is the example that Jesus gives us here. The example of Christ in washing feet by exhorting one another to follow him. The example by washing feet by wearing, bearing one another's burdens. Let me tell you something. I went into the, I, Clyde and Lib Stubbs gave me about two years ago a tape for Christmas of a Cambridge University choir singing great hymns of the Christian faith and the London Philharmonic Orchestra in the background. And it's orchestrated in beautiful hymns, the best collection I've ever had in my life. And I wore the tape just to shreds. And I went into the Baptist bookstore last week to get another copy of it. And I went over and looked through the tapes. And I found one that said, demonstration copy, not for sale. So I asked the lady who was the clerk, I said, uh, uh, may I buy this tape? And she said, no, that's a demonstration copy. It's not for sale. And I said, well, can you get me another one? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, what's the use to demonstrate something if you don't know if you can sell it? And she said, well, I'll ask the manager. <laughs> and so she did ask the manager, and they did order me a tape, and I got it yesterday. And I'm very thankful for it. But now so much of our preaching is like that. Demonstration copy, not for sale. Can I buy it? No, I don't have it. Well, now this is a demonstration copy that is for sale. Take it home with you. I want to take it home with me. I need it. In this book by Colson, which I keep trying to pound into you and pound into myself, there's a marvelous story of going to Washington. The Anacosta section of Washington, D.C. sits on a bluff overlooking the capital city just across the river is the, is the imposing capital itself. Anacosta is a ghetto of hunger, crime, drugs, hopelessness, and might as well be a continent away as far as the lawmakers are concerned. None of Washington's celebrity and power brokers and the reporters who track them ever come there. However, one balmy June morning in 1981, there was an exception. A black limousine and television trucks lined the curbs in front of an old red brick Assumption Catholic Church in the heart of Anacosta. Soon after the cameras and the reporters were in place, a small group of nuns and priests arrived, clustered around a little wisp of a woman in a white muslin sari. The tiny figure moved with unusual grace up to the steps of the church, waving at a cluster of children nearby and pushing right past the reporters that crowded the doorway. The celebrity to, who somehow managed to understate her own arrival, an attitude unheard of in a city that thrives on pomp and protocol, was a 70-year-old Albanian nun 
you know her as Mother Teresa. As 1979 Nobel Prize winner and a world-famous figure, she could have commanded an airport welcome by a host of government officials. She could have addressed a joint session of Congress or attracted thousands at one of the city's great cathedrals. But instead, she went as inconspicuously as possible to a troubled and neglected corner of the city to establish an outpost of the cities uh, of the Sisters of Charity. Now then, I don't have time to read it all, but let me say this. Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa had a brother who came up to her, and this is quoted, and this is a direct quote, uh, and uh, he was having some problem with uh, his superior, and she complained, he complained to her. Uh, he said, my vocation is to work for lepers, he told Mother Teresa, and I want to spin myself for the lepers. She stared at him a moment, and then she smiled. Brother, she said gently, your vocation is not to work for lepers. Your vocation is to belong to Jesus. Mother Teresa is not in love with a cause, as noble as her cause is. Rather, she loves God and is dedicated to living out his life. Now, that's a good example of humility here. Then, there is another lady that I don't have time to tell you about, but I told you about her one time before. Read Gladys Aylward's little book, the small, Alice Burgess' account, The Small Woman. Read this wonderful little lady. But surely, I said, in 20 years in China, you must have had many strange experiences. This is to a woman who was a parlor maid in London, who looking through the books in the doctor's home where she worked, saw books about China, and who had come to Christ and decided that she would go to China as a missionary. When she applied to the mission board, they said they wouldn't accept her. But she said, God told me to go. They said, well, he didn't tell us. We're not going to take you. You know what she did? She saved the money. She bought a ticket on the Trans-Siberian Railway and she went to China and became a missionary. And she did many remarkable things. And Alice Burgess, Alex Burgess in telling this says this. But surely you must have had some strange experiences. Oh yes, said Gladys, but I'm sure that people wouldn't be interested in hearing them. Nothing very exciting happened. It was about 15 minutes before she confessed that she had once taken some children across the mountains. The rest of the conversation went in a manner, a verbatim memory which I have never forgotten. Across the mountains? Where was this? In Shanxi in North China. We traveled uh, from, I can't say this Chinese name, across the mountains to Xi'an. I see, and how long did it take you? Oh, about a month. And did you have any money? Oh no, we didn't have any money. I see, what about food? How did you get that? Well, the Mandarin gave us two baskets of grain, but we soon ate it up. I see, how many children did you say there were? Ninety, hundred, no, nearly a hundred, she said. Then I became conscious that I was saying, I see, I see, rather often, and actually I was not seeing anything at all, <laughs> except that I was on the brink of a most stupendous story. And then he goes on to tell how that little woman walks into a savage riot in a prison with a mad prisoner holding a meat cleaver in his hand that is dripping blood, demands that he come forward and hands it to her in the name of her living God. 
and speaks to them about faith in Jesus Christ and demands that the city officials do something about the terrible plight of the prisoners. The small woman, the small woman with a big heart for God and a great heart for God. And here is a man. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he died on a day in April. This is a day in April. Very much like this day. But it was over in Germany. Bonhoeffer and the other prisoners arrived at Schonenberg on Saturday, April the 7th, 1945, and were lodged in the village school. Then on Sunday morning, all the prisoners, including, and there is a Russian here, said to be Molotov's nephew, pressed Bonhoeffer to, to conduct a service. After some hesitation, he agreed. He took as his text, with his stripes we are healed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Then they sang Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And English survivor Hugh Faulkner has said that it was an incomparable experience which carried them to spiritual heights. Scarcely was the service over when two men appeared and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready and come with us. He knew what it meant. And he asked an Englishman who was present to take a message for him to Bishop Bell of Chester. To tell the bishop that this was the end, but for him it was also the beginning of life and that the ultimate victory of their cause was certain. Then Bonhoeffer was taken away. Bishop Bell, who was the one who spoke at Bonhoeffer's memorial service in London, said, so now Dietrich is gone. Our debt to him and to all others similarly murdered is immense. He made the sacrifice of human prospects of home, friends, career, because he believed in God's call for his country, and he refused to follow those false leaders who were servants of the devil. Our Lord said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it to eternity. To our earthly view, Dietrich is dead. Deep and unfathomable as our sorrow seems, let us comfort one another with these words. Bonhoeffer arrived at Flossenburg Prison that Sunday evening. He was tried and condemned immediately to death. Bonhoeffer's serene demeanor made a great impression on the prison doctor who thus described what happened. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor and praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer. Then he climbed the steps to the gallows. Brave and composed, his death ensued after a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man who died so serenely and submissive to the will of God. The man who's writing these words is Malcolm Muggridge. And he says, as Bonhoeffer went to his death in Flossenburg five years, 
of the monstrous buffooneries of war were drawing to its close and Hitler's Third Reich, which was to last a thousand years, was to reach its ignominious and ruinous end. The liberators were moving in from the east and the west. The air was thick with rhetoric and can. Looking back now across the years, I asked myself where in that murky darkness any light shines. Not among the Nazis and certainly not among the liberators, who as we know were to liberate no one and nothing. The rhetoric and the cant have mercifully been forgotten. What lives on is the memory of a man who died, not on behalf of freedom or democracy or a steadily rising gross national product, nor for any of the 20th century's counterfeit hopes and desires, but a man who died on behalf of a cross on which another man died 2,000 years ago. As on that previous occasion at Golgotha, so amidst the rubble and the desolation of liberated, quotes, Europe, the only victor is the one who died, as the only hope for the future lies in his triumph over death. There never can be any other victory, and there is no other hope. So the disciples argue about being great. And Jesus tells them how to be great. They are to follow his example. He does not say, once you know these things, blessed are you if you underline them. He says, once you know these things, blessed are ye if you do them. Bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, the lesson is so much bigger than any of us is really able to take in. And yet when we look at the cross of Jesus, what else can we do? We pray that thou wilt be merciful unto us sinners and that you will forgive us for Jesus' sake. And if there is some person here who has never yet known the joy of really surrendering his or her life to Jesus as Lord, may this Palm Sunday see him really reign as king, not just for a day, but for always. And will you bless that person by knowing that as they give as much of themselves as they know how to give to as much of you as they can understand that you will take them at that spot and make them what they ought to be. Then, then for those of us who have walked a long time with Jesus and still find ourselves out of tune with his mind, bring the mind of Christ back to us. Bring us back in touch with him again so that we may do his will. We thank you for great servants of the past who have served you and for opportunities that we now have. Help us to make the best possible use of them for your glory alone. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.